Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a, mes- a measure of faith. It's good to see everyone again, um, and this is a, a joy and, and privilege um, to open God's Word uh, with you guys together. Um, as mentioned, with the, uh, the the relationship conference, is such a treat to be able to uh, preach to our former lighters, and and that is always the case. Um, but yeah, so. So far, these past three weeks, we've been going through this series on, on the church. Um, it's an ecclesiology series, I suppose. And Pastor Ray opened for us uh, with unity in the church from Ephesians 4 and the glorious destiny that awaits us. Uh, and last week, he spoke on division in the church from Philippians chapter 4. Um, but yeah, so joint heirs, this is a... This has been pretty sweet. I don't know about you guys, but the flock groups is, is pretty amazing. Um, Laura and I only uh, went to one so far. <laughs> we were gone this past week, so we, we need to catch up on the reading. Um, but it, it really is such a sweet thing, and, and it is, I feel like it's the realization of a long-awaited dream um, for, uh, I think, for, for many of us. And so it's definitely, a, it's, a, it's a joy and, and definitely just so awesome to be a part of. Um, so the topic that <clears throat> I was assigned for this week is service in the church. And this is a topic that is often and uh, easily misapplied. Now, there are many wrong approaches that have been taken when addressing this topic. In broad mainstream evangelicalism, there are various approaches when when you cover the topic of service in the church or serving in the church. And there are a variety of factors that typically influence why this topic of service becomes something that needs to be addressed. And some of these might sound familiar to some of us, given the variety of church backgrounds um, within our group. So one is a need-driven approach. So this is basically when a church realizes that there aren't enough volunteers to run certain programs. So we need more ushers. We need more Sunday school help. Uh, We need more parking lot attendants. We need more camp counselors. We need someone to run our VBS programs. Or we need someone to run our men's ministry. Because we can't not have men's ministry, right? We can't not have VBS this summer, right? Like, that would be preposterous. (laughs) 
no VBS. Um, but by the way, props to the day camp volunteers. Def definitely, we we have seen how much you guys have tirelessly slaved over uh, this event and, and making it happen. Um, and so, praise God for for your service. But when folks are getting burnt out and we maintain a philosophy of keeping a program just for the sake of keeping a program, that's elevating programs over people and preserving ministries over actually ministering to those involved, right? Now, it's a fair assessment that by and large, you guys have heard it said, that 20% of a typical congregation does 80% of the work, right? Know that key, note that keyword, work, right? But here's where well-meaning churches and well-meaning Christians will sometimes go wrong. So you have this kind of a thought process. We need more volunteers to fill our youth group or uh, some sports outreach or whatever. And, and here's this 80% of folks this is about 80%, 20% right here. So all, all of you guys, um, you're not pulling your weight, okay? You guys are not pulling your, covering your fair share. And, and now this, this, this seems bad. I'm not directing that. <laughs> um, it's, it's funny how everyone sits on the left side of the room. Um, but so, so you see this, this problem, okay? These folks aren't pulling their weight. And this becomes a very pragmatic assessment. There's work to be done, and these people here are not helping. So, so let's, let's fix that. Let's give them a message on what? Serving. Right? So that's one typical approach to this topic. And I will say definitively that that is not the pastor's intention on assigning this topic, okay? So just wanted that to be said. Now, there's another approach, and this is the commitment-driven approach. This is where you try to conjure up commitment in people through giving them ministry responsibilities, through putting them in positions to serve so they will claim ownership of a, of a ministry, so let's give this guy charge or something. Let's give her some responsibility. Let's give him some type of ministry position. Let's give him a badge so that he'll be more committed here, so that he will show up more consistently. I feel that to be so manipulative. And I hope, I hope you guys think so as well. You're using service in the church to contrive a shell of commitment that didn't grow from within. But rather you're appealing to an individual's sense of self-worth or, or their work ethic. You know that, oh, I have a job to do, so therefore I must come. And that's totally backwards. You have the cart in front of the horse. And another approach is the duty-driven approach. This is where one would say, you should be serving because it is your Christian duty to serve at church. So go find a ministry and get to work. God is a workman. He's always working. 
He who watches Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, so neither can you. After all, Christ died for you, so you have an obligation to serve. So get to work. Start serving. Now there's a debtor's ethic that slightly exalts human exertion over sovereign grace there. He gave his life for me. Now I owe my life to him. Therefore, I will serve him. Now, if that is any of us, I will echo Paul, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Christ gave his life for me. I serve him not because I owe my life to him, but actually I serve him because he owns my life already, and I am not my own. More on that later. Um, and the final approach is activity-driven. This is busyness, it's doing stuff. Because activity becomes synonymous with ministry. And churches will fill their calendars with activity that may or may not necessarily qualify as kingdom ministry. But perhaps from the world's perspective... A church that is buzzing with activity and all these people are mobilized and doing stuff. And the church has all these ministries and programs and all these events going on. And it's growing numerically in the world's eyes. That church might be praised as a success. Like a flourishing corporation where business is a booming. But then not only do we mistake activity for ministry, we often mistake activity for identity. We allow our identity to be defined by our activity. You guys understand that? For instance, we often associate what someone does with who they are. Right? Wait, who's that guy? Wait, what does he do? Apple Sam. Do you guys know Apple Sam? Right? His name's not Apple Sam. <laughs> it's Sam Chan. But we call him Apple Sam because well, he works at Apple. <laughs> or, you know, it's, it's not because he only eats apples or he likes apples. <laughs> or Craig. When you think of Craig, he's a doctor, right? And Liz and Danny, you guys are nurses. I think you guys are nurses, right? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't ask any of these people before beforehand. Uh, but Phil, I know he's a dentist. <laughs> and uh, Elder Bill, he's also a dentist. And Ethan and Jess, they're artists, designers. <laughs> right? um, and Doug, you guys know Doug? What's Doug? He's a baller. <laughs> right? Uh, or he's actually a boxer, if some of you know about his, his, uh, his uh, former days. <laughs> um, yeah, you should see the video. Uh, so, so we unconsciously associate what people do with who they are. Right? We often interpret one's identity based on one's activity. 
And that carries over into our spiritual life. We begin to interpret our spiritual identity based on our church ministry activity. Because we emphasize activity so much, serving, doing stuff, that we might measure our walk with God based upon our involvement. And then we start applying that metric to others, and we judge people's spiritual maturity based upon their level of ministry activity. We mistake service for Christ as maturity in Christ. This is because it's so much easier to run around and do stuff at church for God than to spend an hour on your knees every morning communing with him and knowing him. And we dupe ourselves into thinking the more we do for God, the more spiritually mature we are. You know, I'm a Sunday school teacher, or I'm an usher every week. I'm a worship leader. Therefore, I must be spiritually okay. And time and again, my heart has been broken hearing of some brother or or sister who has wandered from the faith when they had once served so faithfully, so consistently, so arduously. Yet they didn't keep first things first. And they mistook their ministry activity for their spiritual identity. They built their house on sand. And the storms came and beat against that house, and the house fell. Great was its fall. So what you do does not define who you are. But who you are will define what you do. And in that frame of mind, may God's word shape and inform our theology of service, which we'll find actually has very little to do with service. It has very little to do with what you do, but everything to do with who you are. So I'd like to read our passage again. Thanks, John, for reading it ahead. If you're still in Romans 12, I'll read from verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. God be our teacher this evening, Lord. As we look at what it means to serve in your church, what it means to serve you, what it means to serve our fellow man. God, give us insight and give us humility before your word as it might convict us and change us toward godliness that we might serve as you have called us to serve. I pray this in your name. Amen. So pop quiz. Here's some Bible study time. 
what is the main drive of this passage that I just read? What is the main point? Okay, we find in this text here that Paul is making an appeal, right? He's giving a charge. What is that charge? I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to what? To present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Which Paul defines for us to be our spiritual service of worship. So the main drive is this appeal to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. And he defines that as our spiritual service of worship. That words, that phrase, service of worship, it is service that is sacred. It's like that of a priest. So this is kind of Old Testament Levit- Levitical language here. And I appreciate uh, the, the NES translating this as service of worship. Um, whereas other translations like the, well, the ESV and the NIV have uh, taken the liberty to interpret this as just worship. And it's interesting because there are uh, several other words for worship that could have been used if Paul's intent was purely just worship here. And then there are other translations like the King James just went with service. But I feel like that's lacking in, in giving that flavor what, what type of service this is. And so I appreciate how the NAS chooses this phrase to define this word, service of worship. Indeed, service must be worshipful in its intent. And so the service is a worshipful type of serving, and Paul describes it as a presenting of ourselves to God. So tonight we're going to look at three aspects of our service of worship before God. Three aspects of our service of worship before God, and they're going to be the basis of our service, the nature of our service, and the means of our service. That's the basis of our service, the nature of our service, and the means of our service. Now, for us laymen, basically, it's the why, the what, and the how of our service before God. So let's look at the basis of our service, the why, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. So Paul is urging the Roman believers to present their bodies a living and holy sacrifice. And he leads with what? Therefore. So why, Paul? Why should we present ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice? Paul's answer. Everything I've written so far. So this is all of Romans 1 through 11. Romans is a great book, and now I'm just going to give you a really quick fly-through overview of chapters 1 through 11. So uh, buckle up. (laughs) Romans 1, the gospel. The gospel is what? It is the power of God unto salvation, right, for everyone who believes. And then Paul also goes into the consequences of unbelief. You guys know this verse. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the what? The truth and unrighteousness, right? And then you have the tragic horror that God gives them over to their lusts. You know, and we live 
in the post-Romans 1 world. We see the outfall, outfall of that. Now, Romans 2, the moralist stands condemned because he has not repented. In Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And every mouth is stopped, and all the world is guilty and called to account before God. But God reveals his righteousness through who? Jesus Christ. And sinners are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption accompanied by his son. What a beautiful truth, Romans 3. Now, Romans 4, what's Romans 4 about? Abraham, right? Just as Abraham was justified by faith and righteousness was credited to him, so will it be credited to us on the basis of our faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, Romans 5. Therefore, we are able to rejoice in tribulations with hope, knowing that God has richly poured out his lavish love upon us, which was demonstrated again in who? In Christ who died for us even while we were yet sinners. Also Romans 5, the law came in to what? So that transgression would abound, right? But then what? God's grace abounds still more. Romans 6, we were baptized into Christ's death. We were dead to sin, but made alive to God. Romans 7, what is Romans 7 about? Conflict of the two natures, right? I do what I do not want to do right? And practice the very evil that I do not want to do. And sin wages war for control of my mind, and it often wins. But praise be to God through Jesus Christ, who is the only one who can deliver me from my sin, right? Romans 8, the great eight. Therefore, there is now no what? Condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. For you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which you cry out, Abba, Father. We are children of God and joint heirs with Christ. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And what does Romans 8 close with, right? Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, things present, things to come. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then we come to Romans 9, 9 through 11. What is Romans 9 through 11 about? This is the Everest, the Everest of the sovereignty of God, right? I will have mercy on whom what? I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Romans 10, regardless if you are Jew or Gentile, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 11, God has not forsaken Israel. God keeps his promises and his love for Israel endures. All Israel shall one day be saved. Therefore, we can bank on his promises. The Gentile believers were once, we were all once disobedient. Yet God showed us mercy in part through Israel's disobedience whom one day will also be shown mercy. And then the close of Romans 11, the great doxology, right? For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. And Paul bursts into doxology, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Romans 1 through 11. And now Paul says, therefore, that is why. 
That is the basis for why I'm urging you, Roman believers, by the mercies of God. Eleven chapters of the wondrous mercies of God. That is why I am exhorting you, my brothers, present your bodies. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. So you ask, what is the basis of our service of worship before God? The why of our service, it is the mercies of God. So we've seen the basis of our service. Now the nature of our service, the what of our service. So what is the nature of our service before God? It is the presentation of our bodies. Taking it straight from the text. The presentation of our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Now again, this is Old Testament temple Levitical type language. Where the people under the old covenant would come with their bulls, their lambs, their goats to offer them as sacrifices before God. It was a symbol of atonement that would one day be fulfilled in who? In Christ, in Jesus But here, instead of an animal, Paul says we are to offer up ourselves as a living sacrifice, our spiritual service of worship. So so what does this mean, present our, what is this presentation of our bodies as a living sacrifice? So when he says present your bodies, this is your whole bodily life. It includes your physical body, but also your heart, your mind, your strength, your life. This is everything that is you. Present it before God as a living sacrifice. So your heart, let's look at your heart. The seed of all the seat of all your affections, your thoughts, your desires. What is it? I ask you guys, what is it that your heart desires? Is it happiness? Is it fun, pleasure? Is it entertainment? Maybe it's material things or material comforts. Maybe it's that better homes and gardens home or that car. Maybe it's that lifestyle or that job or that promotion. Maybe it's that relationship, that spouse, that intimacy. Maybe it's that respect, that acceptance, that sense of belonging. And there's little room left for longing for God. But rather, it is overcome with the pervasive power of human want, which resides within every heart. John Calvin said, man's heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, and it's a perpetual factory of idols. The human heart, a perpetual factory of idols. Therefore, your heart must be presented to God, given over to God. God, give me new desires, give me new affections, new ambitions, new loves, new devotion, a new hunger for holiness, a new passion for your glory. Here's my heart that you might shape it after your heart, God. 
present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So you present your heart. What about your eyes, the gates of your heart? What do you allow to pass through those gates? Things that we put before our eyes are seared into our memory. And you need to protect your heart by guarding your eyes. What did Job say? I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze longfully at a virgin? Or Psalm 16, 8. I have set the Lord always, continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Present your bodies. What about your physical body? Your physical body is an instrument that can be for good or for evil. There's a parallel passage in Romans chapter 6, verse 12. Paul writes, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Basically, do not be ruled by your bodies. Do not be overcome by its lusts. You must take control and present your body to God. This is self-control. This is buffeting your body, beating your body, and making it your slave. Conquer the body. Tame it. It's like breaking a horse, domesticating a horse, and let your body be your servant for God rather than letting it be your master for sin. One old commentator wrote, body, speaking to his body, I go with you three times a day to eat. Now you must come with me three times a day to pray. So present your bodies as what? As a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Literally, we are to present ourselves as a sacrifice that is living, holy, uh, living, holy, and acceptable to God. So living, holy, and acceptable are modifying sacrifice. So living, present yourself as a living sacrifice. It's interesting that he calls for this because before this, all the sacrifices that have been have been dead sacrifices. Right? The Old Testament sacrifices required death and bloodshed. Now we're called to be a living sacrifice, not a dead one as if we're seeking to atone for our own sins. And no, you're able to come to God as a living sacrifice because there was another sacrifice given to God that was a sacrifice of death. So by virtue of Christ's sacrifice, yours can now be a living one. 
We're called to be a living sacrifice, a holy sacrifice, set apart from the world and fully devoted to God. We are holy, his, W-H-O-L-L-Y, and called to be, called to be holy as he is holy. And we're called to be a sacrifice that is acceptable to God. And again, solely because of Christ's work are we made acceptable to God. And thus, you now have the opportunity to please him. Not to earn or work for God's favor or his approval. But it is biblical for you to understand that because of Christ, you can live your life in such a way that puts a smile on God's face. Now, presenting yourself to God, this whole idea that Paul lays out here, presenting yourself to God as a living sacrifice, which he defines for us as our spiritual service of worship. Presenting yourself to God as a living sacrifice really boils down to just one thing. It boils down to a realization a vivid declaration that you are not your own. That's what it's about. Presenting yourself to God as a living sacrifice comes with the understanding that your body, your heart, your desires, your affections, your hands, your feet, your voice is all on loan to you. These don't belong to you. These are all his, for you were bought with a price, and you belong to God. You have been purchased and transferred over out of the cruel bondage of slavery to sin and into the joyful fullness of slavery to a new and good master. MacArthur writes in his book, Slave, which I I highly recommend, true Christianity is not about adding Jesus to my life. Instead, it is about devoting myself completely to him, submitting wholly to his will and seeking to please him above all else. It demands dying to self and following the master no matter the cost. In other words, to be a Christian is to be Christ's slave. And now the wonder of it all is that his slaves are adopted into his family to become his very own sons. Slaves of God becoming sons of God. So now you belong to him completely as a slave of Christ How ridiculous it is for you to subject yourself once again as a slave to sin when you have been bought and paid for by a new master. It's like you found a new job and you're working here and then then you just kind of showed up one day at your old job to work. Sorry, you're not on the payroll anymore. (laughs) 
So therefore, we rightly ought to present ourselves as a living sacrifice to him who is our master. So you see, our service before God is a matter of lordship. It's a matter of ownership. It's a matter of your identity. It's a matter of who you are, which is not defined by what you do. Your identity, who you are as a child of God, is defined by whose you are. We are his slaves. Therefore, our service before God has to do with being and not doing. The Greek word for slave in the New Testament is, what is it? Doulos, right? And throughout the New Testament, wherever the phrase to serve God is mentioned, it's interesting. Whenever it says, you know, uh, you know, serve God or, you know, he served God, whenever that phrase is mentioned, it is the verb form of doulos. It's basically being a doulos, being a slave. So, for instance, you cannot serve two masters, right? Matthew 6, 24. You cannot both serve God and money. That word literally is you cannot be a slave to two masters. You cannot be a slave to God and money. So see, that verb, it's a verb of being, not doing. It's not, you cannot uh, really serve as a slave to masters. No, it's you cannot be enslaved Two masters. Be a slave to God and money. And that's why the term serving God can sometimes be misconstrued. Because the Greek word for serve in the New Testament when applied in other circumstances, apart from God, so not serving God, so when you're serving man, it's diakoneo. It's the word from which we get deacon. This word is used to describe like a waiter. You're waiting on guests at a table, or it's to serve food, or to minister to someone, to care for someone, to meet needs. When Paul describes his ministry, his ministry of the gospel, it is a diakoni, diakonia. Diakonia is never used for serving God. We're not waiting on him as servants. We're not attending to God's needs. You know, God doesn't need you to fill up his water glass. The omni God has no needs. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. There is no need for man to fill Some in the Old Testament times were mistaken, thinking God needed sacrifices. He has no need for animal sacrifice. He has no need for our lambs, bulls, or goats. Psalm 50, every beast of the forest is mine, says the Lord. The cattle on a thousand hills. God needs no one. God needs no thing. God needs no benefactor. If you just look at the preceding passage in Romans, in Romans 11... For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? 
Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God has no need to be served. He has no need to be pampered. Acts 17. Paul addresses the Areopagus. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since God himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So God doesn't need us running around serving. He doesn't need us running around spinning plates to keep SFBC running. We're not in the business of keeping this church propped up as if its growth and its existence depended upon our human exertion. The church will not collapse without your service. Someone once said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Oh yeah, that was Jesus. So I ask, what can you do against the gates of Hades? We can do nothing. It's not in our power to save God's church. God's church doesn't need saving because she is already saved by her Savior. So we are not as all that as we think ourselves to be. This is precisely what Paul's talking about in verse 3. Let no one among you think more highly of himself than he ought to think. You see, it's an attitude of change. It's an attitude change. The biblical pattern is this. Spiritual maturity precedes spiritual ministry. Godly character precedes service in God's church. And if God hasn't given us the people with the right character, the right heart, the right attitude to serve in a given ministry, then it's simply that. God hasn't given us the people to serve in that ministry, and it's okay. It's really a question of our understanding and our reliance upon an omnipotent and sovereign God. This is a question of our theology. We're not about filling in the org chart with warm bodies. This isn't some corporate business enterprise, SFBC, right? San Francisco Bible Corporation, whatever. (laughs) Um, That's dumb. Um, (laughs) We're not in the business of just getting everyone running around serving just to keep things going. But we are in business. We're in the business of sanctification. Your focus should not be on serving God, but on submitting to God as a slave 
Your focus should not be on doing, but it should be on being. And if your life isn't about presenting yourself to God as a living sacrifice, as a slave of Christ, if that's not true of your life, denying yourself and taking up his cross, fighting and mortifying your sin, then we don't want you to come asking, where can I serve? God wants your heart. He doesn't need your hands. He doesn't need that kind of service of wood, hay, and stubble that is all going to burn. So we need to ask ourselves, where is my heart in the things that I do? And with what am I building? Hosea 6.6, the Lord says, For I delight in loyalty, I delight in love rather than sacrifice and the knowledge of me rather than burnt offerings. Therefore, to serve God, it's not to minister to God, it is to be a slave, a doulos of God. It's about his lordship and his ownership in everything that you do. This is in the church and outside the church, at home, at school, at work, in every way that you serve, in every way that you love and care for the people in all those arenas of your life, in all the diakoneo ministering. It is all to be done for him who is your master. In him you live and move and have your being. You see, there's no distinction between the sacred and the secular. Your ministry in church should not take on any more significance than your ministry outside of the church. And I'm asking you, do you restrict and confine your ministry to Sundays and Fridays? The people at work, at school, and at home have been placed into your life so that you might serve them, minister to them, diakoneo them, feed them, be a source of life to their soul. Show them the love of Christ. Or do you have some sort of spiritual multiple personality disorder where you switch it on when you come to church and it goes off once you're outside of this two-block radius from 401 Terrible? Part of our responsibility as Christians, indeed, is to come together for our regular gathering, serving one another. But there is another part, I think a harder part, where we are sent out as sheep in the midst of wolves, being not of the world, but yet we are in it, serving ministering as lights in a dark place. And for you guys here, this is arguably one of the darkest of places. But all the while taking heart that our king has overcome the world. Now granted, it's hard. And that's why we do come. We gather on Fridays and Sundays 
And that's why we have flock groups. So we can be encouraged by the love of the brethren. We can be emboldened by mind-renewing, life-transforming truth that compels us to press on as we engage the world outside these walls. So church, that is you, church. Wherever you go, wherever you are, everything you do is his. It is all his. It's about ownership. We're Christ's slaves every day of the week, not just Fridays and Sundays. Everything you do with your life is a reflection of your master. And everything that you do can only be one of two things. Either obedience or rebellion. So as his slaves, we must live and act according to his will. And this is where we need tremendous help. Which leads us to our third aspect, the means of our service. The how, the means of our service. Verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So what is the means of your service, the how? Now, I'm not asking you, how do you serve? That's so short-sighted, you know, because there's a million ways you can serve. There's a million ways you can diakoneo and minister to someone. You give them a ride, or you can stack chairs, you can even play basketball. Or you can minister to someone with just a single word. So I'm not asking, how do you serve? I'm asking, how does it happen? What happens inside that compels us to serve? And how is our serving informed? And how is our serving driven? It's in this verse. It is the renewing of your mind. It is the work of the Holy Spirit through the transforming power of God's word. So how do you serve? Well, this is how. Your mind is changed and you grow in your faith so as to discern how to honor God with what you do with your life, what you do with your hands, what you do with your time. It is the road of sanctification. All your life with opportunities to glorify God all along the way. That's how you serve. So Paul says, do not be conformed and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed. Basically, do not be molded by the world's mold. Do not be cookie-cutted by the world's cookie-cutter. Don't live like the world. Don't think like the world. Don't desire like the world. And don't come here and run God's church like the world. But rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now that's all easier said than done. Because on our own, 
We are programmed to live like the world. We are programmed to think, to want, and to covet, and to lust exactly the way the world does. On our own, we are helpless because our default is to to slip down and be conformed to the world's mold. But there is hope. Now consider the verb tense here. Voice. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed. What voice is that? I'm speaking grammar here. That's the passive voice. Yeah, thank you, Brian. English major. No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just got my back. So, um, so this is the passive voice, right? Where the subject is being acted upon by an external force. Passive voice. See, there's an ocean of hope. Just in that tense, in that voice right here. It is not up to us to accomplish the transforming. Take heart. We are being transformed. We are being exerted upon by the effective power of an external force outside ourselves. A force with a capital F. You are not alone. So dwell in God's word. Saturate your mind with scriptural truth and may the spirit of God unconform you out of this world and transform you from the inside out. So do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word for transformed is metamorpho. What does that sound like? Metamorphosis. A change in form. This Greek word was used to describe Jesus' transfiguration in Mark 17. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain. There he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as the light. And so it shall be with you. So it shall be with you as the Spirit of God in his word transforms you from one degree of glory to the next. Until that day, as Matthew 13, 43 Jesus says, then the righteous will shine forth as the what? As the sun in the kingdom of their father. There's a world of hope as you are being transformed. But also for now, you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind for a more immediate purpose. What's that purpose? We read on. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This is why you need a renewed mind. 
Okay? So you can prove, you can discern the will of God, that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And Paul's not talking about God's sovereign will, okay? The will of decree, right? He's not talking about what's going to happen in your future, who you're going to marry, right? Where you're going to live. That's not what he's talking about. This is God's will of command. This is his moral will. This is how God desires you to live. This is how you ought to love God and your fellow man. This is how to respond in every situation, how to respond when you're annoyed or irritable, how to respond when you're depressed, when you're neck deep in debt, or when that girl breaks your heart, or where you can't find that job, or when you lose your job, or when you lose a child, or when your health declines, or when your father or your mother dies. God, what is your will for me now? How do I respond? And the only way to know how to respond rightly, according to God's will, in that moment of pain, is to have a renewed mind. Because typically, when trouble rips our lives apart, or when things don't go our way, our natural response is not the will of God. Our natural response is wrong, and often it involves sin. So you can't just flip a switch and say, I'm now going to respond in a new and godly way that is contrary to my nature. You could try, but that's not going to last. Instead, you need to become a new person. You need to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You need to cling to your Bible, and you need to ask of God, God, make me new. Make me patient. Give me selflessness. Give me love for your people. Give me a servant's heart. Strengthen my hands to love people. Give me a pure mind. Change my desires. Give me love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, give me self-control that my life may be lived as a living sacrifice before you all my days. This is your spiritual service of worship. So, your service in the church outside of the church, and all of life before God. It's not about what you do. It's not about lists. But it's a transformation of who you are. You're being transformed by the renewing of your mind so that whether you eat or whether you drink, whether you hold open a door or whether you seat someone at church, whether you fold a bulletin or you give a meal or you give a ride or you pray with someone or you weep with someone, whether you shake a hand or you hold a hand, whether you teach a class or you speak a word of life-giving hope or whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of God.
Now I want to end with this last observation. If you take a close look at our text, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Okay? By the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. I'm going to ask you, how many bodies are here? Who knows? It's your question. <laughs> many bodies, right? Plural. But how many sacrifices? Singular. One sacrifice. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. We are in this together. The church as a whole, all of us together, cannot be a singular living sacrifice unless we individual members are being living sacrifices. Our unity, our interwoven togetherness, our joint airness as one body, one church, one bride of Christ, one family of God, one people for his own possession, with one shared hope and one destination. This is scattered throughout Scripture. As Pastor Ray preached in our opening week, Ephesians 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. In Colossians 2, 2, that we are knit together in love. We are interwoven together. We're not Velcro together. Right? We're knit together, woven together. That also carries the image of people having boarded the same ship, headed for the same destination. This train is bound for glory, this train. This is the reality of the church of God. He did not design us for a private, individualistic type. If that works for you, that's fine, type of religion, just like Pastor Henry preached on Sunday. I love this is God's plan, just have all this tied together. Nor is it, if I'm not doing well in my walk, if I'm falling into sin and giving up on the fight, that's my own personal matter. It doesn't affect anyone else. False. Your relationship with Jesus is not an individualistic phenomenon. We are not in this faith alone for ourselves. The church does not exist individually. The body suffers when the hand is hurting. 
If the right arm is bruised or broken, the left arm will carry as the other heals. Cain was wrong. You are your brother's keeper. And you know, there's no shame here. We don't come here to show off how well we're doing. We have our nice little lives all put together nicely. Oh, I can't reveal the fact that I'm deeply struggling with some serious sin. Or my marriage is in shambles. I got to keep up appearances. No, we're all sinners. We're limping through this life. We're torn apart by sin in the war against our flesh. This unending fight for sanctification. That's what the Bible guarantees. Nobody's fooled. We are all broken people. None of us has it all figured out. None of us will be strutting stridently into the kingdom of God. But we will come limping, yet hopeful, having been afflicted but not crushed, having been struck down but not destroyed. And we come to the church gathering of believers weary and ragged. As Martin Luther said on his deathbed, we are beggars. This is true. This is a hospital. It's not a museum. We all need help, and we all need each other. We need to be encouraged and emboldened and challenged by life-giving truth to press on. Because the world is against us. Our own flesh is against us. God is loving us. He is on your side. And he is loving us through one another. When you show love to me, you are demonstrating the love of God to me. And vice versa. When we are speaking truth to one another and serving one another, we are speaking and serving on behalf of God to one another. While he gives the ability and he gives the strength and he gives the passion for us to do so. 1 Peter 4.10 Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve. Diakoneo, minister to others. Faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. You were designed to exist for others and to be used by God for the spiritual welfare of others. Enough with this individualistic Christian living. You owe it to your brothers and sisters sitting beside you to get into the word, 
and to be on your knees with petitions before Almighty God so that your mind may be transformed and your heart might be moved to love. God, make me new. Kill this sin that plagues my heart. Forgive me for my self-centered, self-preoccupation. Help me to love. Help me to give of myself. Give me strength to bear my brother's burdens. Give me the wisdom and the empathy to know what to say. Take my life, God. Take our lives and make us a living sacrifice. So if you haven't picked up on it yet, this is the very reason why we're doing flock groups. This is what the church of Jesus Christ is about. These flock groups aren't just for us to gather together and do Christian-y things. Make it count. Don't squander this opportunity to live out the relationships designed for God's church. Discipleship, accountability, service to one another, ministering to one another, speaking truth to one another, bearing one another's burdens, picking one another up after having fallen into sin and helping one another overcome temptation. And the anthem over all of this, if you haven't gotten it yet, is love. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you what? If you love one another. John 13, 35. Whatever you might do, if you speak with the tongues of angels, or if you lead worship, or fold a bulletin, or you serve in the nursery, or you plan a retreat, or you attend flock group, if you do not have love, you gain nothing. It's just wood, hay, and stubble. Colossians 3.14, beyond all these things, Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So to close, service in the church. Not so much about doing stuff. Not so much about doing stuff as it is about presenting yourselves, presenting ourselves collectively as a living sacrifice to God, that he might transform us and use us as he pleases, that all may behold and see his love in our love and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. God, forgive us for living for ourselves. Ignorant of the fact that we are yours, that we have been bought with a price, and ignorant of the fact that you have 
brought us with many brothers and sisters. We repent of our individualism, our neglect of the body, our neglect of ministering to one another, of loving one another, and our neglect of pursuing you so that we may be taught how to better love one another. To do in us the work that only you can do. Renew us, transform us. We are yours, God. And you do with us what seems best for your glory and your church. Pray this in your name. Amen.